The epistle reading comes from James chapter 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. All right, if you could uh, look over at the epistle reading, James chapter 1, it's in your bulletin, or you could look at it in your Bibles, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 18 together. So this is the first Sunday in Lent, and um, uh, Lent is a season leading up to uh, Holy Week, the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection, Uh, 40 days long. It's the framework of time. Uh, Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Jesus conquering Satan with the power of the word. And so uh, we go to Lent, one of the reasons we go to Lent is to uh, think about this path of the cross and uh, renew, allow the Holy Spirit to renew us again for a life of repentance and to think about Jesus' victory over Satan as the fuel and the paradigm for that repentance. That's why Lent is 40 days long. And um, so what we're going to do this morning, I mean, there's, there's other stuff to Lent, but uh, facing temptation, struggling with temptation to sin is a big part of this. And so we'll look at the, this is the first reading, this is the first epistle reading this year that the lectionary has for Lent. And so let's look at what James has to say about fighting temptation and uh, uh, how we fight temptation, uh, what the goal of fighting temptation is. And this is like a lot of, uh, like a lot of James He's a big word picture guy. There's lots of evocative uh, images. Uh, men's Bible studies studied through the book of James uh, a couple years ago. Uh, lots of metaphors, lots of uh, object lessons, lots of pictures. And today's no different. Um, he's going to describe two different types of birth. He's going to talk about uh, babies being born and um, what that means for uh, struggling against temptation. And so let's, uh, verses uh, 12 through 15 is the first Um, The first birth and the uh, 16 through 18 is the second birth. So let's look at the first one. And in the the first one, 12 through 15, James is, he's going to show us the fatal result of giving in to temptation. And he's going to describe it in terms of um, a baby being born. So uh, let's, uh, we look at verse 13. And I'm not going to spend too much time on 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. Uh, I think I've heard a lot of sermons about that. Like when this text is preached on, a lot of time is spent on explaining. What does it mean that, you know, you face temptations, God is sovereign in control, but he doesn't tempt anybody, he can't be tempted either. What does that mean? Uh, I'm not super interested in talking about that this morning, except just to point out that James is saying that in this first birth that he's going to describe, God is not an actor in this first birth. He doesn't show up as a character. He will in the second one. But in the first one, there's no space for you to insert him into the story, all right? That's, so that, that, and we'll just leave it at that. And moving on then to uh, verses 14 and 15. So check this out. There's three characters here. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed 
by his own desire. So each person, that's going to be uh, me and you. And uh, the second character is, weirdly, our own desire, which is luring and enticing us. So here's something that's a part of you. And James is kind of separating it out and saying, you know, think of yourself as, you know, this person. And then think of your desires as being this other person that's trying to lure and entice you. And he uses two words here that is pretty common in, uh, in ancient Greek to do with uh, um, seduction, to do with sexual sin, being lured and enticed. So here's, here's your desires, and they're trying to seduce you. They're trying to get you to have sex with them. They're trying to get you to join in with them in immorality, all right? And what happens, what, what causes sin is, is when we participate, when we say, okay, that sounds good. I'll allow myself to be seduced by my own desires. The result, though, is this, verse 15. Desire, when it is conceived, if you sleep with your desires, you're going to get pregnant, gives birth to sin, and you're going to have a baby, and the name of that baby is sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So here's the image. Three characters. There's your desires, which are seducing you. When you give in, you have a baby. That baby is sin. And that baby, when it, when it grows up, it's going to murder you. That's, what, that, that's, that, that's, that's how he's describing temptation to sin there. There's not a lot of uh, encouragement or comfort in that. He's basically just drawing a word picture. But it's interesting that this is the way, it's a pretty good description of how sin works. Like in the story of our lives, sin, you know, if you think back to when you're younger, or if you think back to a sin that you're not really, it's not really your, your you know, it's not really your, your cup of tea. It's, you can kind of keep it separate from you where it's kind of out there, and you can see it for what it is. And you might be tempted by it. It's trying to seduce you. You might be tempted by it, but you can sort of say, well, uh, no thanks. Or if you give in, there's this sense of like, oh, man, dang it. There's a sense of shame that, that you've been seduced by this sin. But if you allow yourself to become one flesh with it, if it becomes a part of your life, it will join itself to you in such a way you really can't anymore separate yourself from that sin. It becomes your identity. It becomes who you are. You become a partner with it. It becomes your bedmate. And what's going to happen is that's going to produce a sin baby that's going to rise up and murder you, and there's really nothing you can do about it because you can't separate yourself from it. Now, I've given you guys, don't, nobody can be mad at me because I have given you a solid year of sermons without referencing the great divorce and that was intentional because some of you were sick of it. We studied it in the uh, Wednesday nights, and then I was just all full of uh, the great divorce. I'm going to go back to it now. So if you're keeping score at home, here's your first time in a year that I'm going to refer to the great divorce. But there's this scene in there where uh, Lewis, so the narrator of the great divorce, again, the great divorce is a fiction piece by C.S. Lewis where he imagines people in hell being allowed to take a bus trip up to heaven visit and decide for themselves, do you want to stay here in heaven or do you want to go back to hell? And almost all the people on this bus trip decide to go back to hell. They decide to go back to hell. But Lewis is, the narrator, is on, along for the ride on this trip and he's kind of seeing everybody act, you know, how they interact and what they're talking about and how they're making this decision. Do I want to stay here or do I want to go to hell? And as they're all deciding, I want to go back to hell, he's wondering, like, what's behind all of this? And he's joined by this guide who is basically George MacDonald, who was an 18th century Scottish author that Lewis really loved, kind of Lewis would credit him with kind of being an agent and bringing him to faith. 
Lewis never knew him personally. He died before Lewis's time. But this guy, George MacDonald, is guiding Lewis around heaven. And, and they're having this discussion at one point about this one woman who complains a lot. And the discussion is like, well, you know, that's not really a, a, a bad sin. And MacDonald says, actually, it is bad. You know, you can, uh, becoming a complainer will send you to hell. And Lewis says, well, you know, what's the difference between, like, a complaint, which we all have, and a complainer? And here's what Lewis says. He puts it in the mouth of George MacDonald. Here's what he says. He says, you'll have had, he says, you'll have had experiences. It begins with a grumbling mood. So you're not in a good mood, and you're kind of complaining about something. And you yourself are still distinct from it, perhaps even criticizing it. So you're complaining, and... and but it's not really, I mean, you can see it for what it is. I don't like myself when I'm, when I'm in a bad mood. I don't like myself when I complain. And you're doing it, but it's not really you, and you can see that. However, he says, you yourself in a dark hour may will that mood, embrace it. You may decide, I can go there for some sort of comfort. I can go there for some sort of meaning. And then you start to embrace it which is itself, uh, you know, it's kind of an affectionate term. You wrap it up in your arms. A little bit of what James is saying. You're being seduced by it. You're welcoming it into your bed. There may come a day, but, so, but you can repent and come out of it again, Lewis says. At that point, you can still say, wait a minute, I don't even, I don't like grumbling. I don't like that I like grumbling right now either. I, I, don't, I don't like that I like it. You can repent and step away from it, but there may come a day when you can do that no longer when you're trapped, when it becomes who you are. You can't imagine not sleeping with the grumbling. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood, nor even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. In each one of us, he says, there's something growing. It's good. It sounds like pregnancy. In each one of us, there's something growing which will be hell unless we nip it in the bud. This is what Lewis is saying. This is what James is saying, too, is that all of our sins are like this, that you can, you can keep them at a distance, but if you choose to embrace them, I mean, so a, a lot of you, you'll know, it's, it's easy to see greed in others. It's even, it's even easy at some point in your life to see greed in yourself, to say, oh, I don't like it when I'm using money to make big decisions. I, I don't like it when I worry about money. And you can see it in others, especially people who have more money than you. Like, oh man, they just live their lives for material things. But you sleep with that enough, and soon it will become a part of your DNA. Soon you will create a greed baby that you have no option but to keep it and nurture it, even when you know it's going to kill you. Even if you wanted to get rid of the greed, you couldn't. It becomes a part of who you are. You become a Scrooge. And every sin is like this. Lust is like this. You know, at first it brings shame, but you give into it. It eventually becomes a part of who you are. You kind of get comfortable with it. You sleep with it. And it's killing you, and you know it, because you know the Bible. But it's, you, could, you couldn't get rid even if you wanted to get rid of it. But you nurture it, and you love it, even when you know it's killing you. Self-pity's like this. Lewis tells a story in uh, the Screwtape Letters of, uh, of a woman who, um, no, it's a guy, who indulges in self-pity, and he realizes early on, I can control my sisters by having self-pity. I can make them do what I want. They'll be concerned about me. And so he begins to nurture this self-pity. He indulges it. It's, it, it. It almost tastes good to feel sorry for himself. Also, he gets power from it. 
He can control other people by, with a woe is me attitude. And eventually it becomes, it's, it's, Lewis talks about the same thing in the screw tape letters, eventually it becomes something that kills him and he can't even do anything about it. Bitterness is like this too. Bitterness, powers like this, you know, you, 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 you want control over a certain thing, a certain, you know, a certain project at work or a certain ministry at church or a certain sort of niche in your family's life. And you know why you want control, because you know how to do it, and you're going to get it done right, and it's just everybody else can focus on other stuff. And before long, though, it becomes something that the, it's, it's, it's not the project at work or the, the situation at home or the ministry at church. It becomes the power itself, which is your bedmate. It, become, it, it starts to control you, and the, and the taste of power becomes too strong to give up, even if you know it's doing damage to other people. Frequently, you don't even realize it. We don't even realize it's doing damage to other people, that we're walking over other people, Bitter, I think I mentioned but bitterness is like this too. So many people, being bitter is no fun, right? But, but people, sometimes we nurture bitterness. We love it. It's a sort of delicious flavor in our mouth to ponder what evil thing could happen to the person that we don't like. And not to, uh, I'm going to quote the Buddha here, even though he's not a, a Christian. Uh, it's a pretty good line though, that you know, bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping somebody else dies. But that really gets at what James is talking about. It's that you, you, you know, you're in lust with this desire. It's killing you, but you love it so much you can't let go of it. So, I mean, I, I could just sit, stop, we could stop the sermon here and say, so, uh, you know, don't give in to temptation. And it wouldn't be a Christian sermon. It, it would be as true as it goes here in James. But we need to keep on going and talk about, so what's the solution? Like, how do you fight this temptation? How do, you fight this? How do you fight these desires which are seducing you? And I, the connection might not be super apparent here in the text. It might, it might, might look like, like James is jumping topics. But check it out. He's actually going to describe a different type of birth. Because he's very intentionally saying, I'm going to give you the tools to fight temptation. But it's not going to be in the framework that I just gave you. It's going to be a completely different type of birth narrative. All right? So go on into verse 16. Don't be deceived, he says. In other words, don't fall for this. Don't be seduced. And here's, how, here's, how, here, here's, here, here's the fuel for fighting this seduction. My beloved brothers, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay, so check it out. In the first narrative, there's three characters, right? There's your desires, the man in the story. There's you, the female in the story. There's the seduction. And then there's the baby that gets born, the sin which grows up and murders you. In the second story, there's also three characters. It's also a birth narrative. It's very, very different. So first of all, there's a father, right, in verse 17, coming down from the father of lights. Verse 18 of his own will, he brought us, that's birthing language, he begat us, he brought us, who's the baby? It's us. So we're not the second character anymore, more on that in a second. We're not the female character, we're the baby character in the gospel story. And then there's the, the female character, which is going to be weird for some of you for a second, and you just have to let me explain at the end of the sermon. Of his own will, he brought us forth, with who? By the word of truth. By the word of truth. So there's three characters, there's the father, who's the God, the, he's, he's the father figure in the birthing narrative. There's the word of truth, which gives us birth. 
the, the means by which the Father brings us into existence. And then there's us, the baby in the story. So how can this fight temptation? First of all, let me uh, point out just three things here. We have a radically different role in this new relationship. See, in the first relationship, the one that ends in us being killed, we're agents. We're, we're choosers. We're, we're being lured and enticed, and you can either choose to cave into the greed or to the anger or to the lust or to the self-pity or the bitterness, the, 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 the desire for, for uh, uh, unrighteous power. You can cave into those things or you can reject them. You have agency in that story. You are, you are one of the two characters, the two main characters in the story. But in this version of the story, we have no agency at all. We, we didn't show up here by our own desires. She showed up by the will of the Father. He makes it very clear about this in verse 18. Of God's own will, he brought us forth. This has nothing to do with our desires. This is one of the first keys of fighting this is to quit focusing on our own desires and think about what God's desires are. And I'm not at all saying God doesn't want you to give in to self-pity, so don't do it. That's, that, that would just be another version of making you the chooser. So think about God's desire for you. God's primary desire is not that you do righteousness although that is one of his desires. His primary desire is to have a kid named fill-in-the-blank, whatever your name is. That's God's desire. It's his deep, infinite love for you. We're not choosers in this. We're the chosen ones. We're the kids. Two things about this. Fighting temptation is not just a matter of keeping your same role in the story and just tinkering around with how you're handling things. So it's not like, okay, what James is not, James is not saying this. He's not saying, here's your desires, here's you. You could sleep with your desires and make a sin baby that's going to kill you. But let me show you how to keep distance from your desires and have an appropriate relationship with your desires. See, that would just be, you can keep the same framework that we've been living our lives in, but just tinker around with some of the tools that you're using to grapple with it. And he's saying, he's saying no, absolutely not. This, this calls for radical paradigm change. This calls for an upside down way of the way that you've seen yourself. You're no longer an agent here. You are now the helpless one. You are now the baby in the story. Second thing is this. James does this. I think, I'm almost convinced that James does this because he knows. Look, I mean, James could say, fight temptation. Say no to being lured by your desires. Let me give you five techniques for how to say no to your desires. When you're bitter, think about something happy. If you know that you're bitter at times when you're hungry, learn how to eat a healthy snack. I mean, you could do all these things, or he could just say, God doesn't want you to be bitter. Stop being bitter. He could just say that, but that just leaves you in the role of chooser still. It leaves you in that, you know, the, the female agent role. And, and what he wants you to do is to see, no, you're absolutely completely helpless. And so what he does is this. So, you know, the law, this is the point he's making, I think. The law never works to fight temptation. If you are trying to fight temptation by saying, I can't do that anymore, I've got to say no, you are not going to be successful thoroughly in the long run because you're just trying to be a chooser still. You're trying to be one of the, you're trying to be one of the main characters still. Instead, what James does is say, don't think of yourself in your relationship with God as a rule keeper. Think of yourself in your relationship with God as a child, his child. Now, why is this important? I just did this a couple uh, months ago, so forgive me. I'm going to do this again because it fits in here. 
Like if you think of the Ten Commandments as your way of getting into a relationship with God, or if you break them, something that kicks you out of a relationship with God, then you're not understanding the Ten Commandments. Because the Ten Commandments were never designed to get you right with God or to make you not right with God. The Ten Commandments were always house rules for the kids. And so, again, two months ago I did this, so forgive me for doing this. Like, so I'm not, in my house, I'm not allowed to, to, to yell inappropriate things at Kate. And I do. And those of you who know Kate will forgive me for that. I'm not allowed to yell inappropriate things at Kate. Now, when I do, does Angela kick me out of the house and say, you're done. You broke the rule. This is a house rule. Don't yell inappropriate things at each other. Or does she say, you shouldn't talk like that to Kate. You need to ask her to forgive you. See, this is what, the, the law was never designed to, 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 to make, it can't. The rule, can, the rule, don't yell inappropriate things at Kate, can never make me yell inappropriate things at Kate. The rule, don't be bitter, can never make you not bitter. The rule, don't lust, can never make you not lust. What can make you not lust, though, is the gospel. The knowledge that in Jesus Christ, you are a child, and you cannot escape God's love for you. Are you not more motivated by love than by rules? Does that, does that not motivate you more? What if your father... What if your father was, well, I'll come back to that in just a second. Like, do you, is it harder to hurt somebody you love? Does your best friend have to say to you, listen, I have a rule, don't ever steal my money? I'm, I'm guessing your best friend would never say that in a million years because based upon the love that you and your best friend have for each other, it's like baked into your relationship. I don't take from them, I give to them. That's what he's saying here. He's saying stop thinking of yourself as an agent who chooses and start thinking of yourself as a child who's already in the family. Second thing, verses 16 and 17. Don't be deceived, my blood rose. Uh, I know we just read this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. That first line of verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So in this new relationship where you're not the, you're not the woman being seduced, you're the child who's being birthed out of God's will. In this new relationship, you no longer need to take the good things. So first relationship, you're the female in the relationship. You are being seduced by greed or bitterness or anger. And there's something that you want out of that. And you have the choice. Do I take it or not? This, this desire is trying to seduce me. Do I grab onto that desire and hold it because it's good, or do I say no to it? That's, that's your choice in the first one. But in the second one, you don't need to grab onto those because your role is not a taker. You're not one of the two main characters. Your role is as a receiver. As a kid, your father gives you everything. This is what fathers do. Fathers love their kids, and so their kids don't, your kids don't have to ask you, like, can I live here this month? Your kids don't have to ask you, can you please give me clothing? Or can we please have lunch today? Because you give your kids these things, that's what you do. See, in the second role, whatever you get, you've got to take. It's up to you. And you either take it and get it, or when you're being seduced, you do without and kind of live with the regret of, I could have had that good thing, but I said no to it. But as a child, you never do that. As a child, you just count on your parents to consistently give you good things. 
What James is doing is saying is the key to fighting temptation, again, I'm repeating myself, is not to, not to feel like I have to say no to these good things that I want, but I can't have because they're bad for me, but to say yes to the good things that your father wants to give you without you having to take them. So the problem with sin is not that we're, you know, the main cause of sin, the foundational cause of sin is always and fundamentally an unwillingness to believe the gospel. We sin because we think if I don't get this, I'm never going to have good. We sin, we grab onto power because we think, if I don't do this, I'm not going to get my way, and if I don't get my way, I'm not going to be happy. But the gospel says, let God have his way, and he will make you happy. We grab onto lust because we say, I need this pleasure, or I'm never, ever going to be satisfied. If I don't sleep with this person, they're not going to stay with me. They're going to leave me. But what the gospel says is, let God be your lover. Let God give you pleasure. Wait for him. Let him be the father of lights from whom every good and perfect gift comes from. Don't be the taker that thinks, I have to take these good gifts. That's what's at the heart of the gospel, is a, is a God who loves you and wants to give you every good thing. More on that in a second, too. If your father was the richest person in the world and gave you everything you need, what would be the reasons that you would have for shoplifting? If your father was the richest person in the world and gave you everything that you need, I guess maybe just if you thought that he wasn't going to give you, that he was wrong. That what he thought you needed wasn't really what you really needed, and you knew best. So what James is saying is, is, A, believe that God is your father. That's your fundamental, our fundamental primary relationship with this world is God is our father. And B, believe that he's a giver of good gifts. That the things that we think we have to grab onto are things that he's going to give to us in spades in his own good time. Last thing. Third character. What is the word of truth? We, James saves him for the last, and so we'll save him for the last. Verse 18. Of God the Father's own will, he brought us forth, he gave us birth by the word of truth. So what or who is the word of truth? I mean, you can talk about the Bible, right? This is definitely a part of it. The Bible is the word of truth. You can talk about the gospel, the message of the gospel, the message that in Jesus Christ God has acted to defeat evil, become king of the world, and rule and reign over all things. That's the word of the truth. But back behind all of those, you guys know this, is a person, the capital W word, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. The word of truth, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That back behind any talk of the word of truth is a person, a person who is speaking, a person who communicates, a person who doesn't just say truth, but is truth. This is Jesus. And I know James's analogy here isn't the normal one that the Bible uses. I mean, we think about the Father and Jesus being the Son, Right? And that, that's, of course, that's, uh, that's immensely important. It's kind of rare to frame this the way James does in terms of the Father being the Father and the Word, Jesus being the Mother, giving birth to us together. But one of the benefits of this analogy, as rare as it is, one of the benefits of this analogy is this, is it taps into this great prophetic language about God renewing all things, the new creation. And Isaiah does this and Jeremiah does this as well referring to this event where God renews all things as birth pangs, as birth pangs. And why would Isaiah talk about the renewal of all things as birth pangs? Because if you, you were here uh, the past couple weeks talking about Christianity and suffering and looking at two servant psalms in the past month, you'll know that for Isaiah, the new creation can only come about, as beautiful as it, as it is, it can only come about through the pain of suffering. And, and, and what, I, it's, not, it's probably even inappropriate for me to even talk about this as a man. 
What is a better analogy, a better metaphor? What gets at the heart of that more than a woman giving birth to a baby? It's, just, it's, 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 it's still pretty scary. Uh, some of you know a, a guy whose wife last year, uh, friends of people in the church whose wife passed away in childbirth, and now it's just him and this little baby girl together. But in the ancient world, even more so, like having a baby, going to give birth was a roll of the dice. There was a really solid chance the mom wasn't going to come out of that. And yet mothers still wanted to give birth to babies because this game of Russian roulette, this game where, game's the wrong word for it, but this uh, running the risk of death, walking along the razor's edge between death and life, having basically a near-death experience, having your body exploded, your blood everywhere for the sake of giving birth to life was and is for a woman the most painful experience in the world and yet at simultaneously the most glorious experience in the world. The scariest, closest way that some of you will ever get to a violent, sudden death and at the same time being the producer of violent, sudden life. And this is exactly the way the word of truth brings birth to us. By allowing his body to be exploded so that we can have life, by giving birth to us, by shedding his blood so that new life, me and you, could be born. The cross of Jesus is the most horrible thing and the most beautiful thing at the same moment. It's the most unrighteous thing and the most righteous thing simultaneously. It's the deepest abysses of death that humanity's ever gone into, the death of God. And yet the source of the most powerful life energy in the history of humanity. It's the foundation of the resurrection. And what James is saying is just simply this, and I'm just gonna repeat this and then we're gonna be done, is that the fuel for fighting temptation is not to try to summon up within yourself some new energy to do right some new motivation, some new technique or trick to avoid sinning, but to go straight to the heart of the gospel, the God who loves you and wants to give good things to you, the son who let his body be exploded so that you could come into being, so that your existence could depend upon him and his son's love for you. And the end result of that is not a baby that grows up to kill its mother, which is what, what happened in the first scenario, but a baby who grows up to be New creation. Last line and I'll be done. Look at, the, look at the last line of our reading. This is a great line. This is a way, great way for James to end this. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that, here's the purpose, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now that's language that takes us back to Genesis 1. Who are the first fruits? Who are the very beginning of his creatures? Who are the most important, most special of his creatures? Adam and Eve. The ones that God chose to be his daughter and son. His image bearers his reflectors, who failed, and now God has acted, who failed, who gave in, who were seduced by the snake, who went to bed with the enemy, who gave birth to a baby that rose up and killed them and has killed the rest of us and is going to kill the rest of us. But now in Jesus Christ, he's created this new life where the Father has acted through the Son, through the death of the Son, through the resurrection of the Son, to make us his children, to be the first fruits of new creation, to get the gifts that were promised to Adam and Eve back in the garden, to rule over all things, to have all pleasure, to have all money, to be the kings and queens of the world, to be a royal priesthood in a nation of kings and queens. That's what the gospel is offering us. And James is just saying, 
The first birth, it's weak sauce. It's going to kill you. The second birth is life. It's new creation. It's intimate, deep relationship with the Father and the Son. Let's pray. God, thank you for this promise in James, the promise of your gospel. Work it out in our lives, Father. Motivate us when we're tempted by sin to look not to our own strength, to um, somehow some energies to, to resist evil desires, but help us look to your love for us and the death and resurrection of your son Jesus as the fuel to be your new creation. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.